Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nice on stage 18 of the Tour de France. Perhaps the last mountain stage, well it is the last mountain stage and the last opportunity for the GC men to make big impressions on each other. We've got Giro Rosa stages, I think five and six, wrap up the results there as well as Giro della Toscana and the Coppa Sabatini results we'll just talk about quickly. Luxembourg, I think we'll have to do in a pod on its own. But back to Tour de France stage 18, it was a, a, there was a lot of mountains, but it wasn't, in my opinion, as hard as the stage yesterday, just because of how steep these climbs were compared to uh, Col de la Loz. It started with an uphill false flat with that intermediate sprint with 13.5Ks into the stage, then the Cornet de Rosalon, 20Ks at 6%, Category 3, then a Category 2, the Col de Saiz, 15Ks at 6.5%, another descent, then the Col de Aravi, 7Ks at 6.8%, another descent, and there's no, there's, by the way, there's been no valleys at any point that I've been speaking really, and then the Glier climb, uh, which oh, I, I think was 5Ks at, or oh, 6Ks at 11%, so quite steep, but no, not that I saw no obscene pinches like yesterday. It didn't look as undulating to the naked eye. And there's a little gravel section at the top of that climb uh, that also was a climb in and of itself, which did spice up the GC a little bit. Then another descent, then a short 6K climb at 4.5%, then a descent into the finish at La roche sur ferron So in years past, these sort of stages uh, have been used as a springboard for big attacks from Landis or... Fantani, I think, attacked on says once in the Tour de France, and Froome in in uh, Giro's similar sort of stage, I guess, where the GC, you know, someone like Pagaccia maybe would attack early. But would that happen today in this era? Who knows? Um, but yeah, what happened with the intermediate sprint, Benji, and we we didn't think a breakaway would be allowed to go without Bennett or Sagan in it with those intermediate sprint points so close to the start. Yes, indeed. But the thing that I was expecting was a fierce battle to form an actual breakaway. And to my surprise, that was not really the case today. We had a lot of riders attacking at once and they were gone. We had a breakaway of over 30 riders. And the most important names there were, as you said, Peter Sagan and Bennett and Trentin for the intermediate sprint. But in there as well, we've got once again, Richard Carapaz. He was in there together with three teammates, Castro Viejo, Kwiatkowski and Van Bale. I won't give you all the names because they're not overly important, all of them. But we had Verona in there and Rojas and Oliveira and Cataldo all for Movistar. So we were thinking maybe Maz is planning to try something. We also had Bilbao and Caruso up there. That is for the team of Landa. And therefore, we were also thinking that maybe Maz and Landa were trying to do something in this stage. We also had Hirschi up there. He had three teammates, Arndt Kro Andersen and Nicholas Roach, so was expecting something from him. And I think we also had Sanchez, Luis Leon Sanchez for the team of Lopez. No jumbo riders in there, but obviously that's kind of expected. It was kind of surprising to see it go out that quickly, though, because I genuinely thought we'd have a much bigger fight. And there's one person that missed the breakaway, and that's Pierre Roland. Kind of unexpected, and the moment they realized they missed the breakaway... They basically put their whole team at the front of the peloton and yeah, they try to close it down. But you obviously know if there's 30 men gone with a minute 30, that's never going to work. Were you surprised to to see that Roland missed this huge breakaway? Well, I'm not surprised. Um, 
obviously, you know, Benji, you got on the phone to them and you told Brian Cockard to get on the front and bring your man back. But, yeah, I wasn't surprised. Roland is not, like, his effectiveness in getting into breaks. I'm sure there's this statistic doesn't exist, but sort of percentage of attempts to create a break uh, versus actually that break sticking seems like he initiates a lot and then when a big group of 30 goes, he somehow misses it. Also, Camden and Shuckland miss that break. So really nothing on offer for Bora Hansgrohe today at all, although they obviously still had that stage win a couple of days ago. But, yeah, they didn't. Shuckland was one of the favourites for today's stage, actually, um, and they didn't manage to get him into the break. But that breakaway... It wasn't really let off the leash by Jumbo Visma, and I thought, hold on, are they going to keep this in check? Because I think yesterday we decided that a breakaway was going to win today's stage. That's why I didn't really have a, I didn't really have a pick for a firm pick for today's stage because I thought, oh well, probably going to be a massive break. They're probably going to get eight to twelve minutes, and it could be anyone really. And Jumbo Visma on the Rosalind climb kind of kept it close at like 90 seconds to two minutes for quite a while. They seemed to be pacing and maybe, I don't know, maybe they were thinking, okay, this is the real climb that could break up the race. This is the climb that could, I don't know, like be used as a launch pad if people wanting to actually gain time on Roglic big time. Um, so let's just drive a pace that makes it impossible for anyone to do anything. Um, but then I think that was the base. That was like the first half of the climb. And then I think they chilled out a bit. The numbers might disagree with me, but Bahrain McLaren weren't resting on their laurels again. They had Bilbao on the break and they, uh, they sent Damiano Caruso up the road again. I'm not sure exactly where he, he jumped, but he, he jumped pretty hard, actually. I think Tony Martin was already gone. Grundahl Janssen was gone. I think it was Hessing having a pull along with Bennett. And, yeah, he Caruso put a fair, fair gap into them. And whilst Bill Bauer was in the break, I assume for stage win honours um, initially, that was what he was fighting for, it seemed like Caruso was very obviously going up the road as a springboard for Landa. So... Yeah, what did you think of Jumbo Visma? Did you see anything else with Jumbo Visma pacing Benji? Like what what changed in their minds that then allowed that gap to the break to go right out to five, six minutes? Well, it's a, a bit hard to guess what is in their minds, but I would say that there was no danger really for the breakaway in the sense that none of these riders were dangerous for GC. They had no incentive to follow these riders. They basically had the race somewhat under control. They didn't want the gap to go up to like 10 minutes, I think, with Carapaz up there. You never know he does something random because I think he was on 18 minutes at the start of this. So got to be careful a tiny bit. 18 minutes is a lot, but you never know. And yeah, they started not really closing it down at all, but controlling it, but also controlling it at a pace on which the gap lengthens and lengthens. Now, I want to take it back a bit more before we go any further with the breakaway stories. We also had an intermediate sprint, one thing we didn't talk about yet. That was before the Comet was alone even started. And as we said, Bennett, Sagan, and Trenton were in that breakaway. And Bennett took full points. He took 20 points and therefore is now in a solid lead in that green jersey classification. Obviously, there's plenty of stuff to fight on on the next stage, but we'll go into that at the end of this episode. But he now has 298 points. Peter Sagan in second on 246. And Trenton on third on 235. So 
There's basically a gap of 52 right now, which is a lot because it's more than just a stage win. So Sagan would need a stage win and some points at an intermediate sprint while Bennett gets nothing in a stage to even turn this thing around. So it's getting harder and harder for Sagan, but next stage is going to be important. Nonetheless, let's go back into the breakaway adventures because there was action on the Comet de We had the group split up quite early, and that was because towards the top we had the main riders that we were expecting to fight for KOM on it. At that point, we had both Karapas and Hirschi not too close from Pogachar, the current wearer of that jersey. I think Pogachar was at 66, while Karapas was at, I think, 32 and Hirschi on 34. Somewhere around there. It's not overly important how precise it is here, but you will know in a second what they will have after this Kormet Lozolon. Towards the top, we saw that Karapas was preparing stuff. He had, I think, Castro Viejo at the front, pacing quite a bit, and in his wheel, Mikhail Kwiatkowski. And those two paced, like, honestly, great work by those two guys. And Kwiatkowski, for sure. And he basically launched Karapas about 500 meters before the top. And Karapas launched, and there was one guy that tried to follow. The person we expected to try and go for these K1 points as well, Mark Hershey. And to be honest, I think Karapaz launched a bit too early. And I think that's his mistake on this one. And after that, we saw that Hirschi just flew past him. So in general, Hirschi takes more points than Karapaz on this one. And at that point, I was thinking if Hirschi does this on every single hill, then Hirschi's going to be on the KOM jersey tonight. Anyway, continuing onwards, they follow it up in the descent. Hirschi and Karapaz keep on attacking. And I did not expect that. I was unsure whether... They were just riding it out with the pace because here she's a pretty good descender. We'll talk about that again in a second. Now, I was expecting them to just wait and just hang out with the group again, but then I was thinking it's here she maybe wants to try and do a solo, but with Karapas in his wheel once again. Now, did you expect them to just keep going, both of them? Well, I'm surprised that Ineos immediately, like already on that descent, how far were we from the finish? like 100 kilometers, over 100 kilometers from the finish, I think it might have been, they, yeah, they started kind of playing cat and mouse with Hirschi. And I think Kwiatkowski let Carapaz wheel go. And, yeah, he, um, there's a gap that opened up to Carapaz. He started bombing the descent. And then Bilbao didn't really pull through. And uh, Hirschi started chasing, like, not like a headless chicken, but he really started chasing Carapaz full gas and probably didn't need to go that hard. Um, maybe he was more worried about the KOM points that were on offer and the, the climbs close up to you know, the, the next few climbs rather than the overall stage win. Maybe that's what Ineos' plan was rather than the stage win. But he or she had a... He had a, both a bad and a good crash, if there's such thing as a good crash, in that he was going at really high speed. He obviously leaned it in too much into a, into a corner. He was he pretty much caught up to Carapaz at this point. Uh, the angle of his bike was was, cra- was crazy in this corner. His front wheel slid away, and, uh, yeah, he slid out basically. But fortunately for him, he slid into like a very soft, grassy, Im- raised embankment that like sloped gently upwards, which sort of like gently took his fall and, and his momentum. So he got straight back up. He looked completely uninjured apart from the typical 
Um, not even that much skin off that we could see either, just maybe a few abrasions on his left elbow. I'm sure he's very sore from hitting the deck at probably 70K, 65K an hour. Uh, his bike seemed to be fine apart from the hoods being slightly bent in where he tipped it down, tipped it in or tipped it down rather. And yeah, he got straight back up. Apparently Sunweb's nicks, they have like crash protection panels on the, the sides, on the, on the hips or whatever. Um, so they seem to do a pretty good job because his nicks weren't shredded on the hip, which you normally see. You normally see someone's hip when they crash like that and slide out, the, especially at that sort of speed the nicks go on the left hip or the, the relevant hip and there's just like a bloody patch where all the skin's been taken off. That didn't seem to happen. So, um, yeah, if they want to sponsor the, the Lantern Recycling Podcast, they look like a pretty good product. But, yeah, what when he went down, Benji, you must – like we wanted – I wanted Hershey to do well today. Um, yeah, did you – what did you see the reason for the crash being? Does that change your opinion on him being a really good descender? It doesn't change my opinion of it. Yeah, it doesn't change much about it, but it does kind of give a little crack into, I wouldn't say his technique, but that he sometimes maybe dares too much because in these situations, you don't need to do that. You've got a situation where there's 100k to go, it's Karapaz ahead of you, and it's not like Karapaz will most likely just ride away because in your wheel, you've got Kwiatkowski, but there were other people there as well. At that point, I think, Bilbao caught up, and there was another person, Nikolaide, who also caught up. So they were with extra people. He wasn't going to have to do it alone, and most likely Karapaz would realize, well, it's a 120-kilometer solo if I do it from here on, so I probably shouldn't do it. And I don't think he would have lost too much time on him either in that downhill if he stepped back a tiny bit. But yeah, it's Hirschi. He's young. He wants to show what he can do, and maybe he tried a bit too hard in this end. And it's honestly kind of because Kwiatkowski played a perfect game there, you said it. Kwiatkowski subtly bridged to that group. And because Kwiatkowski let the wheel go, he had to chase it, Hirschi. So it's honestly Kwiatkowski that put him in that position. It's experience from Kwiatkowski that it probably puts people under pressure. And he probably didn't want to force Hirschi to crash, but it did certainly help that he had that situation around him. And just to clarify, the Hirschi crash, I think we might have said it was a little bit earlier. We, we jumbled it up with the Rosalind descent. Here she crashed on the descent over the cold after the cold assays. I don't know. How, sorry, my pronunciation of that is probably the worst of all time. Um, but we'll keep moving. Normal as after that, we had basically Karapos, who was still up the road, and the others caught up with him. Here she was. Uh, yeah, he was behind. I think forty seconds, thirty seconds after his crash, and he he looked like he was going to dive into the downhill again and descend like a madman again and. He came closer to about 18 seconds near the bottom of that descent, but you had a moment where you thought he was going to come back right after the crash. I remember that at least. Initially, I thought there was no chance Hirschi was going to catch up because I expected, we, we didn't see a shot of what Ineos were doing for quite a while. We didn't see Kwiatkowski on the front, but I assumed that Kwiatkowski would have been absolutely pinning it then on that descent with Karapaz and uh, yeah, him and Karapaz changing turns really well because they had Hershey behind. But yeah, Hershey was oh, 35 seconds behind them, I think, about 35. And then that gap drifted out to like 50 seconds, I think. And then we didn't see him for a long time. We saw no Hershey. We just saw 
Ineos mainly with Kwiatkowski on the front, just tapping out a tempo on that climb. Bilbao's in the wheels. Since here she crashed, Bilbao's in the wheels all day. Didn't see him pull barely any turns except maybe oh, over the crest of the outer, uh, the outer V. Maybe he took a turn there briefly on a flatter section. Then Hirschi, out of nowhere, was suddenly like 28, 30 seconds behind Kwiatkowski and Carapaz. Apparently he might have had a bike change or something. And it was like, hold on, where did he just put 30 to 40 seconds into those two? How did that happen? And my guess is, well, my guess is one of two things happened. Either he got the most insane sticky bottle (laughs) when he changed bikes (laughs) or even if he didn't change bikes, I mean, we didn't see it, but yeah, either that happened or he, like, at the base of the climb just went, thought, I'm going to go full gas, pretty much launch it for three to four minutes and just see how close I can get and then just try and collapse as I get to their wheels and then hopefully hang on to their wheels when I get there and hope that they're not pulling too hard. Um, so, yeah, maybe it was the latter as well because then he didn't, it just stayed at 30 seconds. And if you're looking at the live odds, he went, he was, when he crashed, he went to tens. He got back up. It went back to sixes. He then didn't look like he was catching up at all. And the 30 second gap went to a minute. It went out to 25s. He then reappeared looking really good, sprinting up the climb with a 30 second gap. It went back down to, to sixes. And then it just went back out again. It was really, really strange. It just seemed like, yeah, I don't know what happened exactly because the cameras weren't really on him or Ineos too much. The thing about the Ineos thing as well is that in the breakaway, they obviously were aiming for that KOM jersey as well for Carapaz. And at that point, their main competitor was behind, Hirschi. He was not really a danger anymore if he only got the points that was behind Bilbao. So I think he got fifth on every climb at that point because they were still in that group as well, barely hanging on. And yeah, Carapaz took three points on basically every ascension they went on, called the Cezy, called the Zaravi, and that put Carapaz in the pole position to take the KOM jersey on one condition. He had to top the Monte du Plateau de Glières, and Pogacar must not come second or third, I think was the rule. And yeah, that was going to get closer and closer as we continue with this race summary, because basically we saw a dead dropping a bit. At the moment, they hit that Monte du Plateau de Glière. And at the start of that climb, let's rephrase what this climb actually is. It's 11%, 6.3 kilometers, and on top, a gravel section of about 1.5 to 2 kilometers. And yeah, it is a steep one, and it surely hurt the breakaway. We saw in the breakaway that in the chasing group, because behind those five riders, you still had the leftovers of what was initially in the breakaway. So Caruso was still hanging in there. That guy will come into play in a second here once we start talking about GC. But in the breakaway, we saw that, yeah, the strongest riders were clearly the Anios riders because it was the first one to go. Bilbao hung on quite a lot, to be honest, I think until two kilometers from the top. And they didn't even need to accelerate. Kwiatkowski and Karapals just kept on pedaling. I think it was Kwiatkowski for most of this ascension. And they basically dropped him with about two kilometers from the top. So... Two Ineos riders off the front after their leader has abandoned the Tour de France. It's a bit of a revenge tactic, and they are certainly taking revenge on this stage because two riders off taking a minute on Bilbao almost instantly on that ascension, and when they topped it, 
They went over that gravel section, no punctures, and were steaming towards a victory. Who did you expect was going to take the victory of these two? Kwiatkowski, because he's just been a, a faithful soldier for Ineos for I don't know how long now, three, four years, four Tour de France, Tours de France. Yeah, I always thought it was going to be Kwiatkowski, and it's, it's such a shame. It's like the only person that could have beaten Carapaz today was his own teammate because, and I'm sure Carapaz could have beaten Kwiatkowski today. If they are on different teams, I think Carapaz could have dropped him on one of, one of the climbs. Uh, but, yeah, he obviously maybe they had some sort of agreement, re-splitting the bonus. Who knows? They were talking a lot before the line. Um, but, yeah, really happy to see Kwiatkowski take the win. But, yeah, like I would have been in shock if they didn't let him win it because you know, he's just been – even in this year's tour, he was – the last man often on climbs for Egan Bernal when he was going okay. He then did that really good job for Bernal on, what was it, stage 15? That feels like a lifetime ago. That was only three days ago that Egan Bernal dropped really badly there. Kwiatkowski was there with him till the end. So, yeah, happy for Kwiatkowski, his first Tour de France stage win. The first day he's even tried to win a stage, I think, in the Tour de France while sitting off. So, um, he's an unbelievable rider, Kwiatkowski, one of the greatest talents of his generation. He's won world champs. He's beaten Peter Sagan multiple times in head-to-head sprints, in classics, in Belgian classics, in Strade. Just an unbelievable rider, so versatile and um, still underrated, I think. But great to see him take uh, a Tour de France stage win, much deserved. But back in the GC group, nothing had really happened. Jumbo Visma had controlled and everyone had accepted that the breakaway was going to win for quite a long time in this stage. And in fact, the so the mid part of the stage was super boring because it was clear no one on GC really had any opportunity or the strength or it made sense for them to attack in the middle part of the stage because UAE don't have the team. Pogacar, he's not a, he can't be attacking on the the cat two in the middle of this stage because he could you know if he cracks if they catch him he can miss out on a podium position as well so like it's one thing chasing someone down to protect a, a position but it's another thing going crazy and doing some out of the box thing halfway through a stage which can lose you the podium position when it's got like a 0.1 percent probability of even being successful so it looks pretty much like the GC riders were going to wait for the Glier climb to really do anything. That was, as I said, 6Ks at about 10.5%, 11% grading with a gravel section at the top. And Freelander. The Freelander movement came, I think it died today, actually. The Freelander movement died today. That needs to be, maybe that was a Pandora's box that never should have been opened. Mika Lander. Again, full credit. I'm, I know I'm making a bit of a joke, but credit to Bahrain McLaren. For having really good team organization today, for getting everyone on board, for for trying. They had Damiano Caruso up the road because he attacked on the first climb of the day. That was obviously as a satellite rider for Lander. And Lander attacked pretty early on the Glier climb. I don't know how long into it, but it was pretty early on it. In the drops, Pantani style. Yumbo Visma had their full team there. They had pretty much they had Dumela, Wavana, Kus. And Roglic, so they had the three riders that really matter. And, yeah, Lander got maybe a 20-second gap on them, a 25-second gap on them at most. He 
caught back up to Caruso. He, he wasn't really able to help him too much. I think he caught up to Bill Bow at some. No, that was later. But yeah, it just if you don't have the legs, there's not very much you can do when Jumbo Visma are pacing behind you. Now, did Jumbo Visma have to pace to Cashlander? Not really, but they're so strong that it doesn't really matter either. Um, I'm sure, like, why not? Like, why not? Like, what's the worst that can happen? Wafanat was pacing, and at least him keeping a high pace prevented attacks maybe from Pogacar and other riders. So, yeah, do you did you expect anything different to happen on GC on that climb, Benji? Because it just looked to me like TJV or Yumbo Visma chasing down Lander, and that kind of neutralised the whole race because Lander just – he would have to do crazy wasps per kilo to create a significant, a big enough gap on that climb to hold it to the finish. Cause the crest of that climb is 30 Ks from the finish. I didn't expect anything. If I saw Jumbo Visma starting to pace on Landa, but I don't want to say props to Landa because he did something today. And there's a lot of people that said that they were going to try stuff today and did not end up doing too much. So I'm generally quite happy that they lit up the race of it. It didn't give them anything extra, but regarding to yesterday, today didn't lose them anything either, I would say. So on paper today, it was a day that gained them stuff more than it lost them because in GC, you had people that were left behind at that point because when Jumbo started pacing, Uran and so forth were off the back. And if Uran is off the back, that's a bit less pressure on, well, your man Landa, who's getting closer and closer, and because of this whole action, actually moved up quite a bit in GC in the end. So I would say that today his plan worked way more than it did yesterday. So despite attacking, this was a great move for him. Yates and Nuran off the back at that point. And yeah, I expect that to be beneficial considering Uran being an important competitor for him in the time trial because Oran can take time on him while Landa's not exactly a good time trialist so he would only lose time to the people around him so that's one person to probably be less caring about in the time trial I would say yeah and interesting you know Mitch and Scott they they went they went into this Tour de France saying they were going to go for stage wins it ended up that Adam Yates was wearing yellow and they've sort of kind of fallen into protecting him and riding like a that he's a normal GC leader for the rest of the Tour de France. And, yeah, he lost a fair bit of time today and moved down to seventh. Yeah, he may gain that back in the time trial, but I was looking at the composition of who was in the breakaway today and who made it to the, to the finale, and I thought Adam Yates would have been there. He 100% would have been there and would have been in with a good shout of the stage win today, I think if he'd lost a lot of time, especially the, the way he looked on stage two and then he or she being the man who was in that break and were not for the crash, who, who, who knows how long he would have lasted. But I, oh, I, think so. I think he would have lost time to the per- people he was with in that breakaway on the gravel section on top because we saw the Ineos riders, Kwiatkowski and Karpas, we saw them ride on that. Kwiatkowski had almost no trouble. He has the cobble history. He knows how to ride those things. But Karapal was kind of suffering on that gravel section. And it's not a gravel section that is just straight flat on top. It's up and down and up and down. At the start, you even asked me whether it was gravel in a downhill section. But it, it's not necessarily that. It's false flat downhill and false flat uphill. 
at gravel section. And because of that, it is still dangerous. And I think, if I recall from history, Adam Yates is not directly a great cobble rider. And for that, I would expect him to not really be able to keep up the pace against, for example, if he was in the group with Kwiatkowski right now, they would probably have played it differently. I think Kwiatkowski would have attacked away from the group at that point. Yeah, maybe. But he might have caught on the descent. Uh, he might have attacked them before, before the climb. I'm not sure. But I think he would have been in the break and looking good regardless. Um, but with Uran losing that much time, I don't think, as you said, I'm not sure he's going to be able to make up that amount of time on GC uh, against Mikel Landa. But with that gravel section that you just mentioned, of course chaos had to hit for Richie Port. If there was one rider in the GC group who was going to have a puncture on the gravel section, it was going to be Richie Port. He's been, apart from the crosswind section, which I'm not sure you can, on stage seven, I'm not sure you can say that was bad luck, more, hey, it's crosswinds, you make your own luck. Apart from that, he's had a pretty good Tour de France. Uh, well, he had that bike change the other day, <laughs> but he didn't really lose any time, and that wasn't too bad. I think in that stage that, uh, yeah, that Sagan was trying to, what was that stage? The one that Soren Kranison won. Anyway, he punctured on, on this gravel section and immediately was 30 seconds behind the GC group, and I felt so sorry for him, to be honest. <laughs> Poor Richie Port. They've got this really short gravel section. I don't really like including a gravel section there because all that's going to happen, no one's going to win the Tour de France from that gravel section, I don't think. Like, it's not long enough. It's not steep enough. All that's going to happen is someone's going to get really unlucky, get a puncture or wash out on a corner, and their Tour de France could be ruined from this really short gravel section that's there as kind of a gimmick. And... Yeah, like Van Vleuten was complaining, I think, and the other riders about Nigeria Rosa the other day about the gravel section. That gravel section they were in was like way too deep and loose though. But yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of it, to be honest, unless it's really, really smooth and a long climb where something meaningful can happen from it, like the Fenestra. But yeah, then Port had the chase of his life coming back because Roglic was kind of setting pace on the climb. Oh, like, I don't know. It's hard to say what, what was happening, whether the other riders were really tired, but Roglic was definitely at the front of the, other, the group of GC guys. But he wasn't attacking because the pace was pretty constant. Like, Sorry, not the pace. The gap was pretty constant to, say, Lopez and Pogaccia. Pogaccia looked a little bit tired, to be honest, and you know, he was the man. This was really his last opportunity to attack and gain time on Glier. When you got Koos there, Koos was still there pretty much at the top of that climb. There's nothing anyone can do. He's just, he is a nuclear weapon because it's uh, mutually assured destruction. If you attack, Koos will be able to hold your one-minute power or maybe a little bit higher because you can't do your best one-minute power at that time. You you have to ride to your threshold after you've attacked and Koos will ride just full to get to your wheel with everyone else on his wheel. So, yeah, nothing really Pagancha could do, to be honest, on that final climb. He couldn't attack. Mars then started trying to set pace. He was trying to corral the troops, troops being Landa and Miguel Angel Lopez, to set pace with him, obviously because Uran and Yates were properly dropped. And then the fourth place on GC, Richie Port, had had a puncture. So Landa was uh, 22 seconds behind Port on GC, I think, and Mars was uh, maybe a minute and 13 seconds behind Port. 
So, yeah, it was Port's, seemed like Port's puncture instigated Mus setting pace. So he probably won't be on Richie Port's Christmas card list anytime soon. And, yeah, Port was on that descent, gaining on them. Byron McLaren had dropped back Pelbil Bow, who'd been dropped by Ineos in the breakaway. He then waited up for like five minutes and started setting, well, I say started setting pace on the descent. I think Bilbao was not the man to have on the front on that descent. I don't think he's the quickest descender. He looked pretty awkward, actually, in part of the descent I saw when he was doing it on his own. And Port, who's not a good descender really either, was gaining time on him. So it was the battle of two bad descenders chasing each other off the Glier and Port brought it down to like uh, 25, 30 seconds, and then he got completely bailed out. Well, maybe he would have brought it back eventually, but he got bailed out because Yamo Visma started pacing to bring back Wavanart and Tom Dumoulin. Now, what what is the rationale for Yumbo Visma doing that, Benji? Because there is kind of a genius to it. Firstly, you've got the fact that Dumoulin is in there, and Dumoulin is still up there in GC. He's on ninth, and if you're on ninth at that point, then you are pretty much, with Dumoulin's time trial capabilities, a potential top six favorite. So it's important that they bring him back, even for them. And at that point, there's an extra to it, in the sense that they might bring Port up there, which is not really their concern. They don't care about it. But if they can bring these two riders, Wout and Dumoulin, to the front, then... They can control the race more, and they can also control how the finish is written, but we'll talk about that in a second once these guys actually finish. But they were able to control the race much better because of this. Yeah, it was genius because they got the bonus seconds that they want to neutralize neutralize away from Tade Pagacha. They've got, yeah, Tom Dumoulin to consider. And, yeah, they brought back... They helped Richie Port come back. Port caught back up. And then... Nothing really happened, to be honest. They all kind of rode the the last six-kilometer climb, which wasn't that steep at tempo, and they all really, yeah, they just rode it in, I think, Bahrain, McLaren pacing on the front a fair bit for Landa. Um, yeah, they rode it into the finish, and then every, all the GC riders together, Yates and Ordan still off the back, and then Wafanart absolutely destroyed everyone in the final sprint. I actually thought Wafanart was a chance to win today's stage. He... But I guess that was only if a breakaway didn't go and something happened, like there was a reduced bunch like it was. That was second across the line. Obviously, Kwiatkowski and Katapaz were way up the road. Yes, you may see if you look at the results that it was only a minute and 50, but the Ineos guys were pretty much chilling for the last 10, 15 minutes of this stage. They had a gap of like four minutes or so, so they, they really cruised into the line pretty easily. Well, than not, he's got... A lot of options ahead of him. Does he do does he go hard on the time trial on stage 20? Does he go for the stage tomorrow? Does he rest up for world championships? He's obviously still looking really, really fresh. He's in fantastic condition still. But yeah, is there anything else from this stage you want to talk about, Benji? It was it was good to see Kwiatkowski win. It was good that Lander tried two days in a row. Full credit to him, but... Ultimately, nothing really too much happened on GC, and it was a little bit disappointing for me. Yumbo Bismarck just way too strong. It's the last mountain stage, and there's nothing anyone can do to beat Roglic. 
That's true. And I also think that there's a lot of people like blaming the parkour for it, but I don't think that's really the case. If we got a situation no. where a team like Jumbo Visma can control it less, then you're going to have more open racing. Nonetheless, I did enjoy today's stage. And one thing that will be very important for the time trial as well that we don't think about directly is the fact that because Pogacar made a sneaky move on top of the Plateau de Glière, he took eight points and he's basically on two points of the lead of KOM, two points behind Carapaz. Now, that GC of the KOM is not decided yet because on top of the time trial, La Planche de there are points to be gained. And those points can be gained by the fastest time on the climb, which means that you will have a situation where Carapaz will be riding very softly on the flat section and sprint up the mountain compared to Pogachar, who will have to do it the whole stage and try to gain KOM even. So he's got a big disadvantage to Carapaz to get this KOM jersey now. If Carapaz can take it, then he secures it. But it's going to be a tense battle additionally on top of the GC battle on La Planche de Belfier. So I'm curious what's that, what that's going to give, to be honest. Yeah, that's crazy that, yeah, that KOM points are awarded for being fastest on the climb, not stage position in the individual time trial in stage 20. That's kind of hard to get my head around. Like, how do people race for that? I don't think, yeah, how does that work? Does Carapaz, does he ride the first half of the TT really, really slowly and then <laughs> smash the climb? Because Pogaccio obviously, Pogaccio obviously can't do that. He has to ride the whole TT full. Like he probably will still be quicker on the on the climb than Carapaz. But yeah, it's um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's what a weird rule. Um, I think I saw people on Twitter asking the Tour de France, being like, "Can you confirm this for us?" Yeah, I'm genuinely sh shocked as well because I didn't know there was that, but it's a first scat climb and you can actually gain 10 points on La Planche Belfi ITT according to the rulebook in English. I haven't checked the French one, not going to lie, and that's important because there was a difference between the French and the English one earlier on in this Tour de France. So let's hope it's in the French one as well. So wrapping up the GC positions after this stage, still Roglic first, Bagatius second, same time gaps, 57 seconds back. Lopez third, Port fourth, Lander and Mars move up to fifth and sixth. They don't gain any time on Richie Port though. It's just Uran and Yates who lose time to them. To them, Dumoulin ninth, Valverde still in tenth, and Damiana Caruso actually moves up to eleventh. Uh, tomorrow's stage, there's not going to be anything too much happening on GC. I don't think. Uh, looks to me like stage four. Hmm. It might be a little bit hard for the sprinters if they're really if they're tired after what has been a really hard day for them in the mountains. Maybe today's tomorrow's stage could be a little bit too hard. By the way, we should say all this. Everyone made the time cut. I think I saw on Twitter that yeah, apparently everyone made the time cut. So Bennett, Ewan, they'll be going to Paris, uh, but the green jersey competition has still not yet been decided. Tomorrow's stage from Bourg-en-Bresse to Champagnol, 166.5 k's. Easy stage compared to the last few days. But rolly, lots of little rolly climbs. There's not many cat. There's only one categorized climb, a cat four, 4.2 k's or 4.4%, but it just looks to be up and down, up and down, but not very steep ones either. Um, it's funny how these profiles look, actually. Like this profile looks as hilly as some of the days where there's actually Category 1s. And it's just, it, it's a 
seems like they're out of proportion, but that's a, a gripe I can deal with myself. Um, it finishes with like a f- short little descent in the last 25 kilometres and then maybe three kilometres, four kilometres of false, of flat or false flat uphill. Looks like a little bit of a rise, but nothing too crazy uh, in the last kilometre. My pick for the stage is obviously Wild Van Art. I disagree. I'm going to take someone else. I, I think it's going to be a breakaway. And it's mainly because I don't see incentive for Jumbo to control it. Bennett can't get over these hills, so I don't see the Koenig doing it either. You've got a situation where Bora's the only left over there, and I, I don't feel like Sagan will get over this that easily. And they will have to control the peloton until that intermediate sprint to do that, which is honestly not doable. It's one or 20 kilometers into the stage. So I really don't see that possibility. They'd have to keep on pacing to prevent any breakaway to go away. I think we're going to see finally in full action Thomas de Gens. I feel like the stage is for him, honestly. I feel like this is a stage for Thomas de Gens. No, I don't think I don't think there's any chance for a break tomorrow because... These hills aren't that hard. Like, if Sagan can't get over the, these hills, then he literally is over the hill. Like, I don't think <laughs> these hills don't look too hard to me. And if they are too hard for Bennett, then Bora are going to pace like crazy because they want to get keep the Koenig off their back and try and get maximum points for Sagan at the finish and at the intermediate sprints. So if, if Bennett is dropped, Bora will pace. And even if there is a break up the road. So, yeah, I think... I also think the Koenig, yeah, I just don't think it's that hard a stage, even though it kind of looks rolly. Obviously, Lotto and the Koenig might be chilling because, yeah, they want to want to set too much pace. It, it'll be hard for them because they don't want to set too much pace and put their own riders into difficulty. But then if there's a break up the road, then do you chase that back, maybe maintain the gap? But, like, the first, there is a sort of climb at the start of the stage where maybe a break can go. But, yeah, I don't. I think it'll be Wild Van Aert winning the stage. Um, I don't know what the odds are. I don't know what. But, yeah, it's, it's been a half few days in the mountains. I do like your hand pick, but he, he seems pretty tired. He tried again today, um, so maybe he – I'm not sure he might have the legs. But we'll see. It's uh, It was actually one of my picks on the ITV preview. I picked this stage as an interesting one where, hey, if Bernal is like – 10 seconds ahead of Roglic going into the ITT, do Ineos try something? Do Ineos try and attack on like the last climb of the day to gain time on Roglic if he's weakened or something? But that was many moons ago, and <laughs> obviously nothing <laughs> is going to happen on GC tomorrow. So they'll be waiting for the time trial, I think. But hey, Tadej Pogacar, never, never count him out. Maybe he launches it on one of these climbs. Who knows? He is... What, probably the rider that should he should earn the combativity award by the way Tony Pogacar but that's stage 19 tomorrow shouldn't be yeah probably you know it doesn't look that exciting but in my opinion could be a little bit more entertaining than the one today um, but yeah that's all from the tour for tomorrow hope you're all enjoying um, the tour coverage I feel like it is a grind in a marathon and Benji and I like we're almost getting like I'm not sure like I'm not peaking for third week I feel like these mountain stages have worn me down um, and they've sort of cannibalized my energy for the other, the other races. But, yeah, do you think tomorrow is a snooze fest, Benji, or, like, actually worth tuning in for? 
I think it's worth tuning into. And I think this is where the green jersey will be fought on. Like you say, this is a stage where Bourne needs to do whatever they still want and win green. I just, I'm not sure it will happen. I feel like they will need to, because if they don't try it, we're going to be at the Champs-Élysées and Bennett will be in green. So it's the final day where they can do anything for me personally. So yeah, I'm expecting Boa to try and explode the race somewhere. I don't know where. I'd say on the fourth cat, maybe. Maybe a break is already gone at that point and they try and go from behind. They try and control the peloton a bit to keep it on two minutes and then try and close it down towards the intermediate sprint. Or they just don't let the break go properly, which is going to be hard. It's the final day, and it's the only team that has incentive to block breakaways on this one. Yeah, it's going to be hard for Bora, but I'm expecting action from them, and I still expect the ones again to take it somehow. <laughs> yeah, well, I think you there's some law in Belgium that you have to do that, so that's fair enough. I know that the government's probably listening to you say that on this podcast, and yeah, we're high up in the charts in Belgium, so yeah, it makes sense. We can talk offline about your real picks, Benji, if, if that is the case. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. But we were going to do um, Giro Rosa, just wrap up a few of the results quickly from Giro Rosa. It was stage five, Terracina to Terracina, 110.3 Ks. Unfortunately, what they've done here is they've put the climbs, the one climb, the cat two in the middle of the stage, right, well, yeah, it was right in the middle of the stage. That meant that, Mariana Voss was able to get over it easily and it was pretty much a, a bunch coming into the finale. No breakaway at all. Strong lead out from Sunweb for Colin Rivera, who I think won Tour of Flanders. Sunweb rider, the American rider. Alison Jackson, I think, might have been leading out for her. But Lotta Kopecky was on right on her wheel, I think Jackson's wheel. She started springing to the middle, Lotta Sadal rider, and then Mariana Voss came around in the last oh, 120 metres. 100 metres, timed it really well, and won that stage. Made it look like pretty much a formality, uh, to be honest. So two, well, that was already her second stage win for this year's Giro Rosa. She won, I don't know, like three or four last year. Mariana Voss still killing it, and she's only 33 years old. So, like, yeah, she's been crushing it for like 12, 14, 15 years, however long, but she's still in fantastic form and, yeah, still winning like, sprints where there's a few rolling hills she's still got to be the favorite pretty much every time in stages like that especially where there aren't really teams or riders strong enough like if Van Vleuten doesn't attempt to break away then it's going to be a reduced bunch sprint or a bunch sprint and the pure sprinters probably won't get over those hills and Voss just seems to win every time and it was the same thing the next day stage six from Torre del Greco to Nola is a short stage well says 87.8 Ks, but then the profile says 99 Ks. They've been messing around with these profiles, changing how long they are pretty much daily. The 170 K one got shortened or lengthened. I'm not sure what happened. Again, they had the final climb. Just a, It was 25 Ks, the crest from the finish uh, on this rolly, uh, sort of rolly stage. There's a Category 3 climb in the middle, 5.6 Ks at 5%. But Longo Borghini attacked... Right at the end of this, I think at the end of this climb, the last climb was 4Ks at 5%, not a categorized climb. And then there was this long descent into the finish, about 25Ks of it. And she got caught. Oh, she had a fair gap actually, Longa Borghini over the top. It's a pretty strong attack from her. But she, I think, got marked by Cecily Utrup Ludwig. And then 
It then sort of went clear on her own. It was hard. The, the, <laughs> the coverage was pretty patchy. And then it came into a reduced sponge sprint once again. Um, and, yeah, it was just pretty much the same lineup of riders. It was Mariana Voss taking the win, jumping out this time to the left quite late. Hannah Barnes for Canyon Shram came second. Lotte Kopecky again third. And Corinne Rivera fourth once again. Amy Peters fifth. So stages five and six were kind of a carbon copy of each other, actually. Very similar profiles, very similar results. Mariana Voss taking the win. No movement on GC on either day, I don't think, especially well, on stage six there definitely wasn't, and on stage five there wasn't either. So still Van Vluten first overall, and Nui Doma second, Van der Breggen third. Van der Breggen not really contesting these sprints or really trying anything with the Bulls Dorman squads over the climb either all the climbs that there were their, their team and her Van der Breggen don't really look strong enough uh, unfortunately it looks like yeah from where we look Van Vluten she just looked way too strong the two Italian one day races I want to talk about uh, Coppa Sabatini and Giro della Toscana now Giro della, Tos- Giro della Toscana typically quite a hilly race actually and it's been won by Gianni Moscon in the past. I've actually made a video on it before. It's a, it's a race I really like. But this year it wasn't so hard, actually. It had, I think the, the race Moscon won, it had actually proper Cat 2 climbs. This one just had repetitions of a wall in it, the Pecoli. And it was a one kilometer long climb, 8.2%. And they had it positioned, the final use of it, it was used mm, three times, I think. The final time was about 17 k's from the finish, and it was a battle between, well, there's Gaviria there, so everyone's worried about Gaviria. There's riders like Jürgen Rollins for Movistar, and also Robert Stannard for Mitchell and Scott. It's interesting that he was sort of up there in the finish, and Ethan Hayter. It was a battle really to get rid, I assume, of, of Fernando Gaviria, and in the end, he actually once again was left without a lead out. When it came into the sprint, Mitchell and Scott were actually controlling proceedings. They had good lead-outs on both of these days for these Italian classics. Gaviria launched really, really early, and there was no Pascal Ackerman here to chase him back. It was actually Hailu uh, Biniam Germay, the Nippo Delco 1 Provence rider, who I've spoken about previously quite a lot, very talented rider, particularly in these sort of Italian hilly one-day races where it does come down to maybe like a bunch sprint at the end, but there are hard climbs. He chased Gavidia, who was gaining on him, gaining on him, but he even he jumped too early. He then got jumped by Robert Stannard, who came second. Gavidia held onto the line. Ethan Hayter for Ineos, he's a good rider. He's a proper good rider. Ethan Hayter, he's going to be a really, he's going to win a lot of races, I think. Um, so yeah, he came third. Bessiger fifth, and I think Bacconi. Sixth, so yeah, quite a nice win from Gavidia actually winning a one day race like that. Now, maybe not the strongest field, but still nice nonetheless. Winning a, a hilly classic like that. Did you catch uh Giro della Toscana? Any of it, Benji? Yes, indeed. But I've got like one rider, but I was expecting more from it's a rider from Caja. His name is Luis Aular. He was actually the king of victories last year. I think he basically won about half of the race he rode in sprints. And he was also decent at climbing and such. So, for example, he was riding for, I think, Matrix Power Tag in 2019. And he rode all these Venezuelan and Colombian races, Japanese races. We've got even Velciclista Madrid, Julio Fernandez, uh, Julio Alvarez, I mean, Vuelta Asturias, and so forth. And 
he basically had even one stage race where he won like eight of the ten stages or something straight after each other. I expected more when he moved to Kaharural because since he joined Kaharural, he hasn't been worth anything. He's gotten the second place in one of the sprints, but outside of that, he's basically been anonymous. So it seems like the moment he went from the circuit in South America and some of the lower Spanish races to the actual proper pro conti slash upper conti region that he just tanked. So it looks like he's not really a, as talented as some people were thinking. And an additional thing is that, as you said, Girmay, he's showing him very regularly and we're going to see a lot from him. Ethan Hater also moving up quite a bit, has done quite a lot already in sprints with Ineos Grenadiers and it's basically one of the only people on Ineos that can actually sprint properly. So it's cool to see that they at least have someone that is not nurtured into becoming a GC leader at the end of his career. So quite cool to see. It was a fun race, but Gaviria was just, yeah, he was favored before the start and he took it in the end. Yeah, on to the next day, or the next one, Italian one-day race, which was today, actually. I think Coppa Sabatini, 210Ks, more regular hills than in the Giro della Toscana, actually. I kind of prefer the Giro della Toscana profile. They they had when Moscon won it, but that aside. And Moscon's at these races, by the way. He was at the race today, the Coppa Sabatini. This, again, had uh, a Pecchioli climb. It was they, they did lots of laps. Uh, as well they did a wall of like 10.9 percent 800 meters long and then i think three laps of the pecchioli climb 1.5 k's at six and a half percent or six percent and then the final there was like a final climb at the finish and it doesn't say what the gradient of the climb was it looks pretty short that final climb and once again well not once again sorry it was dion smith i was gonna say once again Dion Smith surprising us with a really, really good result. Now, he's the name you might not have heard until Milano San Remo this year, where he came sixth to Michelin Scott, which is a massive result for Dion Smith. Um, he's 27 years old, Kiwi rider. He's got one pro win, which is the Coppa Sabatini today. His probably best result before then was the Milano San Remo sixth, if you count that above third GC in the Baluaza Tour. So, Obviously, he's got a really good sprint. He's looking like he can get over those punchy climbs quite well in these Italian races. Now, listen, not not the strongest field you'll ever see. I'll, I'll give you that. But still, Nasser Buani was there at the finish. Gianni Vosconti was there, like Steiner Wolf. Ethan Hayter was still there. He's a talented rider. Um, Marsworth Smith. So, yeah, it's still a pretty good result from Dion Smith. You'll take a win where you can get it, and this is a nice race. It's a one-pro race. Andrea Pasqualon came second, and Alexander Ryabashenko, who I think is a Belarusian national champion, came third. Jakob Moska fourth, and yeah, Bert Smith fifth. Ethan Hayter came ninth. He just seems very consistent, Hayter. He's just always up there in these races. Uh, yeah, but uh, Pasqualon is kind of a – he seems to be a pro-conti journeyman, but he has picked up quite a few pro wins, actually, um, the, the man that came second. He's got a pretty decent kick on him. And he's had a string, actually, of, like, top 10s this year. Like, he came third in Paris-Nice. That's why his name uh, sort of stuck out to me. He's, yeah, he's fifth in Memorial Marco Pantani, which I think Ethan Hayter won from memory. So, yeah, these, these guys in these Italian races looking quite nice. One thing I, I do want to talk about is Gianni Moscon's not getting renewed by Ineos next year. That <laughs> doesn't look likely to me. He's shown nothing this year in Moscon. He's, what, 26 years old or something? 
Um, so he should be in like the prime of his career right now. And these Italian races, which he'd often murder, like he won the Coppa Agostini in eight, 2018. He won the Toscana in at 18, third in Lombardi in 17. Yeah, I don't know what's happening, but he hasn't. He's got one top 10 so far this year. That was before lockdown. That was in uh, Volta alla Comunitat Valenciana where he came eighth, and which is a pretty nice result, actually. I think that was when Pogaccio won that stage. So that was a pretty select group of strong guys. But still, these Italian races, he so far started DNF, Tritico Lombardo 18th, Milano Sanremo 33rd, Piemonte 18th, Lombardia 57th, Dell'Emilia DNF, fair enough. It's a, it's a hard climb for someone like him. Toscana 71st, Sabatini 35th. So what do you make of that, Benji? And sorry, I should give you an opportunity to comment on Sabatini too. I think regarding Mosca on that, we have to wait a week because he's often great at the 200k plus races. He's been selected for the Italian national team. I think it's a pre-selection though because the Italians have this habit, I'm pretty sure, of pre-selecting X amount of riders and they sometimes even just do the final selection on like the day itself, which is honestly quite crazy. But I think that is going to be selected. He was great in the 2018 one, and that's not necessarily because he had an overall great form in that year. He's just really good in long and tough races, and I would not be surprised if out of nowhere in Imola we see Moscon attacking in the last 30 kilometers. Oh, for sure. For and there's sure. a moment where we are like, shit, Moscon world champion, just imagine it. After everything he's done, honestly, that'd be one hell of a meme, but... Yeah, I'm expecting something like that. Next to the Moscon story, there's about two names where I had to add something. First of all, Alessandro Covi. He came eighth in Sabatini. He's only 21. He's a rider that I've been looking forward to seeing in, well, the upper regions in the world tour and such for three years, I think, now. He was a trainee at UAE in 2018, then joined Kolpak, which is like an Italian development team the year after. And he joined again in 2020 this year. And he's actually doing pretty well in Copia Bartali. He was 10th, 12th, 8th on stages. Well, the 8th one was a team time trial, so that doesn't count. But 2015 GC there, he is supposedly actually a bit of a punchy climber, I think, in regards to what he can actually do. I don't think he's a proper sprinter, so it was a bit of a surprise that he's up there. I can be corrected if anybody knows that he's actually a sprinter, then tell me. But to my recall, not. About Ryabushenko then, indeed, he is indeed one of those riders that I, I don't know what to think of him because I thought he would have stepped up more already. He is a rider that was 2016 European champion, I think, uh, for the U23. And he showed a lot of talent. He signed with the OAE in 2017, the year after. And I expected more from him by now. He has already gotten results. He won Kobagos Tony last year. So he's won races of this level and getting fired on this one does show that he has a talent, but he's got no contract for next year yet. So is he going to stay with the OAE? I would hope he does. I do have to be the douchebag that corrects you that he's unfortunately not Belarusian champion. I think he lost that to Sobol, Sobol or something from Mint Cycling Club back in the day. So yeah, in general, I expected more of by now in his career so i hope he can step up i hope he can show himself and redeem a proper contract for next year as well because otherwise we might not see him in welter anymore 
Oh, I think yeah, he'll probably stay world tour, but yeah, will he will he have a role in that UAE team? Um, given that yeah, he won. Look, I think he won Baby Eel Lombardia, and then not really not stepping it up yet three years later. But he he has the talent for sure. Gianni Moscon is definitely he's one of those riders who turns it on for world champs. I think he came fourth last year, fifth in twenty eighteen. As you said, wouldn't surprise me that he has no result and then has a good result uh, next year in Imola, next week in Imola. Um, crazy to think that Worlds is next week. But that's all we've got for today. I uh, hope you enjoyed listening. If you do like the podcast, make sure to give it a review or a rating on your podcast platform or on Apple Podcasts if you know, that probably seems to be the best place to do it. Other than that, we're getting to the last couple of days of the Tour de France. We'll obviously be doing a wrap-up podcast. Make sure you send through your questions. I know some of you have. We'll get to them probably tomorrow because it might be a cruisier day. It's the hashtag LRCP uh, on Twitter. And, yeah, we'll answer as many of them as possible. But thanks for all, all your support. We appreciate it more than you can imagine. See you later. Ciao.